This is Love and Science on BCFM, and uh, we are always delighted to have your company. We're going to talk for an hour, well, a bit less than an hour now, about science in the news and science behind the news. I'm joined, as uh, usual, by ha- um, Hannah Bestwick. You better get your name right there. Hello, Hannah. yeah. <laughs> You've known me long how, enough now. Yes, I have. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay, thank you. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing all right, thank you. Yeah, I've had a busy week. Ooh. I've been up north. Oh, nice. To, well, I, I come from the Midlands, so I, I you know, uh, but even further north than that, apparently there's land, there are people. Oh, yeah. Inhabit, they've got wheels. Yeah, they're doing like quite that. well. Shops. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was, up, I was up near Preston. So I'm, I'm glad that this doesn't stretch that far. Although, of course, you could be listening uh, to us on... Uh, uh, bcfmradio.com in which case you could get us anywhere um, uh, and uh, you, can, you can go to bcfmradio.com uh, go to the schedules, look at the shows and you can listen to our back catalogue of uh, Love and Science shows or any of the amazing shows that there are uh, here on BCFM um, What sort of a week did you have? Uh, week or weekend? Week. Ooh, weekend um, either. Anything. Ooh. I haven't seen you for a week, so anything could have happened. Um, I don't actually think anything. Oh no, I haven't seen you for two weeks. Oh, That's I right. saw my uh, saw my cousin who's expecting a baby, so I'm ah. quite happy for them, Patrick and Holly. They're having a little baby next month, which will be really nice. Very good. Very yeah. good. Oh well, congratulations for them. My daughter is expecting a baby in two weeks. Oh wow. How's that? This is not a one. Yeah. This is not <laughs> a one-upmanship <laughs> thing. But uh, I just remembered that. That's scary. Yeah. Where have that you really been? Worries me. Well, I was in. Cat- well, as one is, I was in Qatar last oh, weekend. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I thought Saturday. Where shall I go? I know. Qatar. Of course, it's a weekend trip away. Some, yes, I was doing some work, uh, some training work, as is my wont. Mm. And, uh, as is was, tradition. And it really wasn't very hot. I was, oh, really? Yeah, because I have it in my... I've been to Qatar a few times, but I, I had it in my mind, of course, with the World Cup thing, mm. that it's going to be baking hot all the time. I should have known better. It's pretty chilly sometimes. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. I spent most of my time inside the hotel. Oh, okay. One of these hit and run visits, you know. Mm. I didn't hit and run anybody. Okay. But I, <laughs> I went. You're overcompensating now. Exactly. You should just quit by your head. I better stop. Just move on to the next thing. Come I on. I better stop. And and um, it's my pleasure to inter- well to say well no I, I've got this all the wrong way round. I was going to say it's my pleasure to say Andrew isn't here this week, um, <laughs> but I don't mean that at all. Uh, Andrew Glester would normally be with us, but he can't be this week, um, and. We happen to have uh, another guest in the studio, which is Rosie. Rosie McCullum. Hi, Rosie. Hi. Oh, wait a minute. Have I faded your... There you go. Try speak again. Hello. Yes, yes there Hi. you are. Good. I'm Hi. here. <laughs> uh, 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 and um, it's great to have you with us. Now, I should just explain, you are here in the studio because you're going to get a little bit more involved in the show. Yep. We're not entirely sure how yet, but uh, you're, we, we, we're, we're going to have you coming along regularly and you're going to get uh, involved with Love and Sight, which is great. So welcome to the, yeah. to the show. Um, uh, but just introduce yourself. Okay, yeah, so I'm Rosie. I'm doing the science communication course at UWE. Um, and last year I was in Sheffield doing my undergrad in biology. And I'm oh. originally from Birmingham, so I've kind of oh, been all over. You're but slowly <laughs> making your way down the I country. I am, I am. Yes. I'll, I'll end up in like the British Channel next year. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, via Cornwall. Yeah, yeah. Go yeah. Cornwall first of all. So you, you studied biology. Yeah, I did. And, and so now you're at UWE. Yeah. So the course, at, what is the course that you're doing at UWE? I'm asking this as if I don't know, but I do. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, so science communication is learning about how, what it says on the tin, how to communicate science, so how to make it understandable for the general public. So, And, you, and you're getting involved with this radio show because yeah. obviously radio is one of the ways scientists communicate. Yeah. Science. What is it about radio that you like? I like it. I like it's it's just an it seems like a very old format of communicating through the media but it's still stuck around yeah. and um i don't know i guess you can kind of tune in from anywhere and, and and now it's a lot a lot of it has gone digital and you can access any radio station online i think it's quite cool i, I know what you mean by it being old because we all we yeah. have to we have to wear evening suits yeah we all, formal attire uh, formal attire <laughs> hat bowler hats and bonnets uh, and things, yes, and yeah. things like that and apparently, um, Lord Reith insisted that um, uh, radio announcers, so the, mm. the, the man put in charge of, of creating the BBC, insisted that radio announcers wore formal evening attire mm. Is that to <laughs> on microphone. Yeah, because nobody can see you. Was that just so that they felt fancy? <laughs> I think it was fancy? standards, my dear. Standards. Oh, OK. Up, up, <laughs> Quite. Upholding standards. But there we go. Well, our programme, it's, it's great to have you, Rosie. And, uh, you know, if, if you want to, ch- uh, we all know that you're there now. If you want to chip in, feel completely free uh, or not. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about um, some uh, science topics that are in the news. And, of course, the big one this week uh, or last week, very sadly, was the loss of uh, Stephen Hawking. I have to say, I felt very sad. Mm. I had a moment of feeling, because... Of course, you think he, he died, I believe, at 70, 76. Uh, 76 years of age. And for the condition that he had, uh, of, uh, um, he, that, that was an incredible feat. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't um, expected to live that long. I think the yeah. life expectancy is quite low. And you're right, it was, it was, there's something about him that made him seem quite um, like eternal. Yes. So yeah. I always Immortal, had this idea that yes. he, yeah, he 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 had always existed by the time I became aware of him, and I I sort of had this feeling that he was always going to be around, even once I died. He just had this kind of yes. eternal air about him. He was never going to be yes. gone, and it's. I think he'd. I think he'd sad. almost taken on the air of a mystic. Mm. You know, some somebody who you kind of yes, they're always there. You go to them, and he says wise things because he spoke about all kinds of things. Mm. It's incredibly um, intelligent man. Yes, he was very upset with Donald Trump for pulling out of the Paris Accord. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, he that. did a, a lot of campaigning for the NHS as well. He always yes. spoke up about it. Yes, yeah, really passionate. Mm. Quite a political figure. Uh, apparently, in the nineties, he was offered a knighthood. Oh, wow. And he turned it down on the grounds... It was part of his protest Mm -hmm. uh, that the government wasn't funding science properly. Mm. And so he said, no, I won't accept this because that's that's the reason I'm trying to highlight that. Um, Well, I'm I'm just going to run through uh, some of the the key points in in his life, but there's so much to say. Um, This incredible figure. Apparently, um, he was born in Oxford, 1942. His dad was a research biologist. I don't know anything uh, much about his mum, but I know that the family left London to escape bombing. So right. we went to, but after the war, uh, they went 
to St Albans and London and were backwards and forwards from there. He got a first-class degree in physics, surprise, surprise, at Cambridge. <laughs> and um, when he was preparing to marry Jane, who famously Jane Hawking wrote a, a book about their life together, I loved that someone did an interview with him well, lots of people did interviews and said to him, how did you feel when they made that film about you? And he said, well, I was very, very worried because it was based on a book by my first wife. <laughs> 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 Which is quite understandable. Um, and, uh, but it was when he was preparing to marry Jane that he was diagnosed with a, a rare form of motor neurone disease, which the Americans call ALS, um, and, uh, which is what that that uh, ice bucket challenge uh, was all about, if you remember, from a couple of years ago. And it gave him less than three years to live. But the disease moved far more slowly than predicted. 1988, he completed Brief History of Time, which sold 10 million copies. Did you get to read that, either of you? I or didn't, sure? no. Yeah, I haven't. I feel a bit... Um I don't know, scared to attempt it, because I, I have heard it's, it's so difficult, but that's Absolutely. no excuse. I mean, I, 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 I read it, but mm. to be honest with you, I can't recall much of it. Mm. And I'm, I've made myself... It was a really difficult book, um, because the ideas in it, the ideas in it, of course, are so, are so complex. So what a fabulous achievement that he turned it out. And um, it, was, it, it had the reputation of being uh, the most bought but less read book <laughs> in the world, having sold 10, 10 million copies. But he wrote another one uh, some years later called The Universe in a Nutshell, which if anybody's looking to read some Hawking is uh, a, 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 a lot easier. Um, and uh, let's just look at some other of the key things in his life. Something which people uh, found very surprising because he'd been with his wife for 20 years and suddenly got divorced uh, from Jane and he married Elaine Mason in 1995. Um, by 2000, uh, he was a regular visitor to Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge because he had... Uh, obviously um, uh, difficulties with uh, brought about by uh, his uh, condition. Um, 2017, guess what he did? Something incredibly physical that Andrew would love to do if he was here. Oh, did he go on the... Um was it the... I want to call it the Vomit Comet, but yes, I'm not sure what the actual term it, is. The Vomit Comet. Yeah. It was part of uh, um, Branson's... Uh, what's it? I, I have it written down here. It's called the Galactic, the Virgin Galactic Suborbital Plane. That's the one. That's the proper name. That's the proper <laughs> name. And uh, yeah, he he went in that and apparently absolutely uh, loved it. You know, for, uh, this this is the, the experience weight, the, of the weightlessness. Of weightlessness uh, because it takes that um, parabolic um, orb, uh, uh, path, which which allows you for a few minutes to experience uh, weightlessness. Uh, and 2014, Eddie Redmayne played him to much acclaim in The Theory of Everything. Mm. Um, uh, the uh, film was released based on Jane Hawking's account of their courtship and marriage. And uh, Hawking himself met Eddie Redmayne as part of the actor's preparation for taking on the role of scientist. And just something else personal, he says, this is a quote from him which I love, I believe that life on Earth is an ever-increasing risk of being wiped out <laughs> by disaster. 
such as sudden nuclear war, genetically engineered virus or other dangers. I think the human race has no future if it doesn't go into space. I therefore want to encourage public interest in space. Now, I say I love that. Uh, I don't really love the idea of Armageddon. Mm. But what I, what, what I do like is that he was always warning and saying, you know, you can't just carry on the way that you are. There are lots of dangers and, you know, the world has to take uh, these things very, very seriously and uh, think about the way it behaves. And he was always warning us about that. But this is a program about science, so there are, there are two things I, I think that uh, Hawking is known for. Uh, one is this uh, discovery of Hawking radiation, mm-hmm. which was that black holes will evaporate. In fact, he did, wow. he did, he did most of his work on... Um, uh, most of his well-known work is on black <coughs> holes. And... He said, actually, there's this thing which is known as Hawking radiation, which means that black holes over time will evaporate. There'll be nothing left. Because we always thought that black nothing comes out of a black hole. Yeah. Have they found evidence of this? Um, Well, they're looking... I I have to admit my ignorance, because I'm not (laughs) an expert on black holes, but they're looking for confirmation of it in the new... Uh, use of gravitational waves because oh, okay. now that we've been able to detect gravitational waves mm. uh, one of the things I believe it will help us to do is y- using those detectors will help us detect evidence of Hawking radiation mm. but it's like you know a lot of this stuff it's there in the mathematics the mathematics said it should mm. it should happen mm. and the other thing I, I suppose uh, is as in the title of the film about his life which had very little to do with the science uh, was um, his understanding, uh, his, his research on the theory of everything, bringing uh, ideas of the very big and the very small together. Mm, bringing them into uh, alignment. Bringing them into alignment, because we've got rules that deal with quantum things, which are very the effects uh, of the very small world, subatomic world, and uh, we've got plenty of laws that govern you know the laws of gravitation known from uh, Newton and Einstein's work on massive stars and people and things like that but the two aren't the same and that's weird that's a problem yeah so scientists work on that and he was uh, uh, very big on that yeah yeah what an amazing life what an amazing life and uh, uh, what an inspirational figure and uh in uh, his uh, words, he said, well, uh, never give up. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, if I can survive uh, uh, this uh, condition in this way and uh, achieve lots of things, then that must be some inspiration uh, to people to never give up. Mm. I like that. This is um, BCFM 93.2, and uh, it's a pleasure to have your company, as always. And I'm joined 
by Hannah Bestwick, as usual. Um, uh, my guest, Rosie McCullum, who's actually going to become a bit more involved with the show over the next uh, few weeks. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome another guest who cycled into the studio just uh, <laughs> a little while ago. Actually, I'm, be I'm exaggerating, but in my mind, that's what you do. By the time I get home, that's exactly what will have happened. He cycled. We opened the door and this guy cycled in. Um, uh, Aaron Moran, hi. Uh, hi. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, have you with us. <clears throat> Thank you now, much. you're doing the same as Rosie. You're studying at uh, UWE mm -hmm. on the science communication course there. And you want to get involved with the show, which is fantastic. Yep. We're delighted to have you with us. Um, what, uh, what's your background? What did you do before this? Um, so I did wildlife ecology and conservation science at UWE. Ah. Uh, so at University of West of England um, in Bristol. And then I sort of decided to... Because I only just turned sort of 21, I thought I'd stay and do the Masters, and it sounded really interesting as well. And obviously there's a lot of opportunities in Bristol to do um, sort of science communication-related things. So, um, if um, And what, um, what do you like about radio? It's a question I asked Rosie earlier, actually. What do you, what do you like about radio? Um, mainly I like the fact that it's becoming a bit more, bit more useful in terms of, like, because everything's becoming more online, on, well, everything's moving on sort of online media and stuff. You can sort of attract a lot of a lot of people because they could just be doing their day-to-day -day thing um and then you can kind of like if you have something interesting to tell them they can sort of hear it and then they'll start thinking more about it um i quite like that i, th I think one of the fantastic things uh, about radio now of course is that you can uh, go back and listen you know all the yeah. sort of listen again facilities that you have and everything which of course you can do with this show if you go to the bcfm uh, website you can find uh, all kinds of programs not just ours love and science but uh, mm -hmm. all the programs that we uh, broadcast so I, I think that's great and i i also i love radio because um, i can do something else while i'm listening to it you know, yeah. I find uh, t TV, you kind of have to watch it, don't you? But with, with you, it kind of makes you inert. <laughs> but radio is the thing for cooking and cleaning and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really handy for that. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Hannah. That's uh, all right. I put your not involving I, me. <laughs> uh, not involving me. I put your microphone down. That's okay. I'm back now. Oh, good. There we are. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> uh, Andrew's not with us this week, which is... Well, we'll cope. We'll just we'll just we'll have to soldier on. Soldier on with without him. Um, I wonder what he would have made of plastic in water, which is our next topic. Mm. What um, this story? I mean, we have had stories before about microplastic. Yeah, we? we've, we've talked about plastic pollution and things and like plas that. Plastic pollution. These giant things in the in the ocean mm, like the huge garbage pa garbage yeah. patch in the middle of the ocean of just floating plastic yeah it's it well there's there's been a recent research project it's not um not a peer-reviewed article which is um how science is normally conducted um to prove it's legitimate um research it's been done by uh, orb media uh, which is a journalism organization um where they've looked at about 250 bottles from eight different countries, uh, different different brands of bottled water, to find out if there's plastic in that bottled water. Now, the, this isn't isn't a, a research project that's been conducted to blame any specific brand for having plastic in their water bottles. It's it's essentially been done to see the, about how prevalent plastic is in our lives like where, where how how deep into our lives is, is plastic getting and what they found is that on average 
a bottle of bottled water that you buy at a shop will contain about 10 pieces of plastic that are larger than a, a hair's width. On average, they contain more that are smaller than a hair's width, but 10 above hair's width, which is surprising. If it's bottled water, yeah. you don't expect it to have anything in it, really. Yeah. 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 It, it, it is amazing. I saw um, a piece on the internet where they managed to illuminate them. So you can, you can, they shimmer like stars mm. in, in, in the bottles and then they can be counted. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's what they've done here. They use a dye called Nile Red, yeah. um, which you, it sticks to the free-floating pieces of plastic and then that allows them to count them yeah. through um, fluorescent. Uh, they fluoresce under a certain wavelength yeah. of light. Um, there is some argument that says that Nile Red will also bind to bits of shell or algae, um, which contain lipids. Uh, like fats, yeah. but they're very unlikely to be found in bottles of water because they go through um, stringent um, sterilising um, processes and things like that, filtered. Um, and all of the companies that were contacted by the BBC about this all confirmed that they are uh, operating their industries, uh, their, their factories at the highest higher standards. So it shouldn't be that there's algae or shell in there, which indicates that it's most likely plastic and they then yeah. conducted some extra research to check that actually yes it is plastic that they found i have to say i have a problem with bottled water anyway yeah but if you if you live in the uk you shouldn't really you shouldn't need, need to buy a bottle to drink of water. bottled water yeah and no. well that's the thing i think a lot of people don't realize that you can go into any restaurant or cafe and they have to give you free tap water really yeah Right. Yeah, especially especially afternoon. if they're serving alcohol, they have to give you free tap water anyway. Right. That's that's a EU requirement. Um, so I have a I have a reusable plastic bottle that I carry around with me, even if it's empty. So if I get thirsty, I'll go into a cafe and ask them to fill it up for me. And I've never once had anybody say no to me for that. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah. But um, the 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 plastic. So we we don't. This report is not saying anything. It's just saying the plastic is there. Yes. It's not saying that it's causing any kind of harm. There's not really any evidence that it causes harm to human health um, to, to consume water that has plastics in it because there is also plastic in tap water and seafood and beer and things like that. Yeah. There's not any evidence at the moment that, that it causes any health issues, but it's, it's more just pointing out that it's there yeah. and that it's, it's got to that point. Yeah. Um, Aaron Mason is... With Aaron Moran. Where's this going? That's not his name. It's another no. person. Yes, that's someone else. Um, Aaron, you, you, if you've studied environmental science, mm -hmm. this must be something you feel quite strongly about, isn't it, plastic? Because it's a bit of a... Uh, uh, the the scary beast, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. There's quite a lot of people doing projects last year. We sort of had to do like a focus on like an environmental issue and um, sort of go about it and try and speak to stakeholders and things about it. Um, and a lot of people tried to sort of put the word out there about how there was so much plastics in pretty much everything we use yeah. um, and trying to like address the issue over Facebook and things. And that's quite a good way to get at. And there's a lot of people. It's become a big thing through like petitions on Facebook now and I think that's what sort of drove it and then Black, Blue Planet 2 happened and then that sort of even furthered it and everyone's on top yeah. of it now. Yes, of course, because uh, David Attenborough has given a bit mm -hmm. of a push for this, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah, there's been loads of talks um, in like the UN to do with banning plastics by yeah. a certain date, so that's really good. Yeah, and um, 
uh, the, the interesting thing, of course, is, is that we, we're talking about lots of different aspects of this problem. So we talked about the great raft in the, in the sea, yeah. which is partly an eyesore, uh, but also is a major problem because uh, it damages fish and other organisms, doesn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, so that's one issue. Where does this plastic come from, do you think? That that hasn't been it hasn't been confirmed in the in the report. Um, one of the plastic one of the, the the predominant plastic that they found in the water bottles was the same kind of plastic that is made that, that bottle caps are made out of. So there were some people that were suggesting that that plastic was getting in just when they opened the bottle to test the water. Right. But that's. Um, when they had, they bought packs of water from the same brand, and not everyone in that pack would have plastic in. So if it was always coming off the bottle cap, then it should appear in all the bottles in that pack. But you can't recycle plastic bottle caps at the moment. You can, uh, I think, at least not in not in every area. You can recycle the plastic bottle itself, but not the bottle caps, which indicate that they they could be what. Like getting into um, being mishandled, um, getting into water supplies um, as they break down, or like wear down, they don't break down. Yeah. Um, it's not. Yeah, it's not been confirmed where these plastics are coming from, but they. It's mostly that bottle cap plastic. Um, it's other things are made out of it as well. But then also nylon, polystyrene, and polyethylene. I don't oh. think I've said that one. And then polyester, and then others yeah. in that order of. Um, how how often it appeared in this plastic, which is interesting, I guess. Yeah, yeah the different the different places it comes from, the different kind of materials that they're finding. Yeah, well, I don't like the idea that I'm full of plastic bits now. Mm. But they, there you are. Um, let's move on to another uh, topic, which is um, uh, volcanoes, um, but not so much. Uh, the uh, the the lava and so on that we normally associate with volcanoes, but the uh, the thunderclaps and um, basically, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the vol- the volcanic thunder that is yeah. made by the eruption. Um, yeah, I know this is something that you've been looking at. I thought I thought it was really cool. It's quite a short article that we read, but um, it's. So there's, you'll quite often see um, videos of volcanic eruptions that, or photos, actually, really good photos in Nat Geo, things like that, where there's a huge plume of smoke coming out of a volcano and there'll be lightning in it at the same time. Yeah. Now, um, we've known that there's lightning in those um, clouds for a while now, but they've never been able to record them in sound. They've never been able to hear, uh, record the clap sound. Um, but they have recently managed to do that, um, they were recording 40 miles away. Yeah. And that's where they picked up the sound. So yeah. I, I can't remember the names of the islands. Do you... I've got... Well, I can't remember them either. I've got them in front of me. It's called the Bogoslov Volcano. There we go. That erupted more than 60 times between December 2016 and August 2017. Mm. So that Plenty was... Plenty of material. Yeah, yeah. The, um, they were able to record the blast from the neighbouring island of Umnak. Mm. Uh, so what we're, we're talking about um, islands in the northern Pacific Ocean uh, last year. Yeah, and the, the sound of the thunderclap sounds like a kind of clicking or popping, it was described as, over the top of the low rumbling that you normally hear during an eruption. Um, I had a listen to an audio of it, but it sounds, to me it sounds more like uh, the tapping of a, of a keyboard. 
Yeah. It's kind of it's oh, not right. not a sharp click. Yeah. It's quite a, quite a dull click. It's really interesting. Yeah. It says uh, uh, here in the article, the Bogoslov volcano lies directly under major flight paths from Asia to North America, and the eruptions last year prompted an aviation warning as plumes of ash rose high in the sky. And uh, we all remember what <laughs> the, the fame... Oh, and I won't attempt to pronounce the name of the Icelandic volcano that went off. Maybe if uh, you sneeze, you'll get the right word. Uh, yes, <laughs> exactly so. Um, but um, I, I read uh, all about the Krakatoa. I mean, mm. we're going back a very long time now yeah. into the early uh, Showing 1900s. your age. Yes, <laughs> when I was a child in the early 1900s. Um, uh, the Krakatoa uh, volcano that went off and, and um, uh, the ships in the area, I mean, a very long way from the volcano, um, reported strange phenomena like uh, a thing called St Elmo's Fire. Have you ever heard of yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is when... Oh, I'm thinking of the film. That's, that's <laughs> why I've heard of it. I was like, why well, not? It was a TV series, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. St Elmo's Fire. <laughs> but it's uh, um, um, something which appears like flames which dance oh, okay. around its static electricity. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 These things are unbelievably powerful. And so they're electrostatic effects and sonic effects, which is what we're, uh, Hannah and I are talking about now. Um, uh, uh, are amazing at, yeah. at, such a, at such a distance, you know, terrifying things. Oh, well, you're listening to uh, Love and Science uh, on uh, BCFM radio. And um, one of the things we talked about earlier on in the show was uh, the sad loss of uh, Professor Stephen Hawking, who was a huge cultural figure, uh, was interested in lots of things. Of course, he's very famous uh, for um, his work on black holes and uh, his attempt to understand uh, things like the Big Bang and uh, to try and reconcile what's called the theory of everything, the physics are very small and very large. One of the other things he was interested in, which he also warned us against but also thought was very important, uh, was the possibility of intelligent life um, on other planets or at least elsewhere uh, in the universe and uh, what kind of... Uh, that it was important to... Uh, know about it, to seek for it, um, uh, but also to be aware it might not always be a good thing uh, to signal our presence to, this was his view, uh, uh, to um, uh, extraterrestrial, uh, other extraterrestrial intelligences. Um, a little while ago, um, Andrew, our own uh, Andrew Glester, did an interview with Professor Dave Newbold uh, all about uh, extraterrestrial, the search for extraterrestrial life. And uh, here it is. I'm Professor Dave Newbold at the University of Bristol, and uh, I've been working on LHC experiments for almost 20 years. Well, astronomy and particle physics both cover a lot of territory. Um, so some of my colleagues here, for instance, are looking at exoplanets, and that's nothing to do with particle physics uh, in any obvious way. Um, but cosmology and particle physics are rapidly heading towards being the same subject. So when we mention dark matter, why, why do we even think dark matter exists? Um, well, of course, the only evidence we have for this is, is from observational astronomy, but more and more also from looking at the evolution of the universe as a whole. And in fact, uh, there's an interplay. The things we study at colliders um, on Earth can actually help us to understand the early universe in a direct way because we're reproducing the energy conditions that existed in the early universe. So this mission to understand that the basic laws of physics at a microscopic level is not different to the mission to understand the universe as a whole on the extreme scales which exist out there. It's the same subject, really. Physics that you see 
every day around you, and perhaps even in the undergraduate laboratory, hasn't changed, that we've certainly changed our understanding of how the universe works. Uh, and to some extent, you know, the LHC has two missions, and the first mission was to confirm the existence of the Higgs boson. And that's, in some sense, physics that was understood in, back in the 1960s, but it, but it hasn't been confirmed until now. So if you imagine this is the last piece in the physics jigsaw, you know, we now have a lovely picture where everything fixed together, the things that Higgs and his collaborators uh, did in the 1960s are confirmed and so on. And the only slight problem is we know that at some point all of that stops working. Our mathematical description of nature is just just nonsense mm -hmm. uh, at some profound level. So, so now the really exciting stuff starts. So whereas the LHC was a sort of confirmation exercise before, now we're really heading into the unknown. So you're probably going to ask me, what is going to happen at the LHC next year? Yeah. And the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> None okay. at all. Okay. Because it's a discovery machine, uh, and there are many, many possibilities. There are many ideas about what kind of new physics might exist. Um, for instance, whether we can explain dark matter. But actually, we have no more idea than anybody else which of those ideas is correct, or none of them, or yeah. more than one of them, and we're going to find out. So we're really now experimenting in the, in the, uh, the fullest sense of the word. You're literally just going to fire particles at, the, at each other and see what happens. We're going to fire particles at each other and see what happens. There's, there's slightly more to it than that. Um, but more or less, yeah. And, and doing experiments at the LHC is a, a difficult business because what you're looking for are statistical signatures of new physics. So there's no one collision that's going to tell you anything on its own. What you have to do is amass a huge amount of data. People talk about big data, this, this is really big. Uh, and then you have to look at the properties of collections of these collisions. So this is why it takes so long. So uh, by the time we get to the end of this run of the LHC, we will be putting together data from two, three, four, five years all together and analysing the whole selection of data. And that gives us more and more sensitivity every year to the things we're looking for. But it's not a discovery that's going to get made overnight. Is it being turned back on at the same kind of energy that it was before? Yep. So at the moment, we're in what we call physics production mode, which sounds boring, but actually it's <laughs> kind of scary in many ways. Yeah. Um, so the emphasis at the moment is not to keep pushing up the energy or the intensity of the LHC, um, but instead to ensure stable running. So we want the maximum number of collisions per year for the reasons I've, I've described, which is that everything is based on statistics. So what's been happening over the winter shutdown is that there have been no radical changes made to the accelerator, no radical changes made to the experiments, um, but we've improved everything. It's small tweaks, it's about maintenance, it's about making sure everything operates correctly because this is the most complicated machine in the world. It seems simple when you see it on the television, but actually it's, it's amazingly complicated. Everything has to work. Now, there are different experiments going on there. There's CMS, there's Atlas, there's, there's others. Why are there those different experiments? Well, CMS and Atlas um, largely do the same science, but the detectors are radically different in, in design. And you have to remember when we first built this uh, accelerator and the detectors, we really didn't know what was going to happen. Um, it was as much of a surprise to us that we discovered the Higgs quickly as it was to everybody else. So we needed two independent ways of looking at the same measurements. And if you remember, one of the spectacular things that happened back in 2012 was that we walked into a room and said, here's the results. And Atlas said, we've discovered a Higgs boson, and CMS said, we've discovered a Higgs boson. And only two or three people in the world at that point knew that both experiments were going to say the same thing. So this idea of independent confirmation 
you, you really have to do this. Um, it's also, of course, an insurance uh, policy, but if one experiment isn't functioning as well as it can do, you always have the other. So the money you've put into the accelerator is not wasted. And then, of course, um, there are other experiments which are specialized for doing completely different kind of measurements. Um, I'll talk about LHCB. There are many others as well. LHCB actually uh, doesn't surround the collision point like CMS and Atlas do. It looks for particles which are sort of scattered forward. Um, and that allows them to do physics with particles called B quarks, uh, which we don't really have so much access to in CMS and Atlas. Now, if you ask a particle physicist where the exciting things in 2017 were, they didn't come from CMS or Atlas. In fact, they came from LHCB, where there are all sorts of hints of new physics, nothing confirmed yet, but lots of exciting studies going on. So we're doing uh, the same physics, looking at the same goals, trying to identify how the universe works, what dark matter is, what physics might be beyond the standard model. But we're using different approaches and for different experiments. And that, that's, that's how you guarantee success. Okay. So if I asked you what you'd like to see in 2018, you'd say some of that exciting new physics. Absolutely. I, I'd like to see, um, I think it's unlikely in 2018 we're going to make a revolutionary discovery um, because one has to build up the evidence for these things. It's not going to happen overnight. But 2018 could be the year where we start to see real concrete hints of something which either has been predicted and is beyond the standard model or is completely unexpected. And they could come from anywhere. There are hundreds of different analyses going on in these experiments. Yeah. And you've no idea which one is going to pop up next and give you something interesting. Yeah. Uh, we're looking in all the nooks and crannies now. So I think 2018, uh, certainly towards the end of this year, have a look at what's coming out at the conferences. Could be some exciting new results. What would you, if there's something that you'd like to see confirmed, something that's kind of You've looked at the data, you've, you've, you've had a look and you think, well, that would be really interesting. I think the thing everybody is waiting for is the discovery of dark matter um, in the laboratory. Um, it, we have a very good understanding now of how dark matter behaves at the, uh, the level of the galaxy and the universe as a whole. A lot of that, of course, is through computer simulations because you can't see dark matter. That's why it's dark. <laughs> um, but we know it's there, or we know that something that behaves like dark matter is there. And this is one of those times in history where there's, there's a conflict inside. So we know from astronomy that dark matter is there, but we know, based on its properties, it cannot fit into the standard model of particle physics. So three quarters of the material content of the universe doesn't actually fit into the theory we're claiming is perfect and works wonderfully. So that's an interesting situation to be in. And uh, at some point, either at the LHC or perhaps in a different kind of experiment, one of these deep underground experiments, we're going to see evidence of dark matter on Earth. And that will be a real scientific breakthrough. And that was uh, Professor Dave Newbold uh, talking about dark matter and not, as I build him, uh, talking about uh, extraterrestrial life. Uh, so there you go. I gave, I gave you the wrong cue for that. It's still uh, very relevant to the Stephen Hawking uh, story, uh, but uh, apologies for that for those of you who are listening for uh, stories about the search for extraterrestrial extra life. We'll have to do that uh, another time. Um, we've just got time uh, to talk about a couple of other stories. Um, out in space, there is uh, a uh, rather... Uh, uh, big problem if you put anything uh, out into space there's a big problem with junk yeah. flying around it turns out there's currently about 20,000 items of space junk more than about 10 centimeters um, in size which I think just means in one of the dimensions um, and then we're trying to develop a way to clear that junk out of out of space out of orbit because at the moment if you send something into orbit you have to be careful of 
all the junk that's there because it can cause damage to your uh, to the whatever it is that you're sending up a satellite a station whatever and at the moment airbus are trying to develop a harpoon system uh, which they're going to use or think they're going to use uh, to try and clear some of that junk out of space now yeah uh, no, I was going to say a harpoon system. It's yeah. just like, <laughs> like uh, catching whales. Like they used to catch whales in the olden times. Absolutely. And it's got barbs on it. And they just, uh, what they're going to do is they're going to harpoon things and then drag them into the atmosphere so they burn up. Um, and that's, that's the solution. Um, there are other things that have been thought about. So, um, for it's, example, it's like. Does, it sounds bizarre to me. It I mean, does. It does sound a little bit bizarre, but I think I'm assuming they're all very smart people and they've thought about what the best way is to do it. Because I think there's the potential they thought about using a robotic arm, but one of the issues is um, manoeuvring very carefully to find to, to grab an item that it, like that is a certain distance away that is also rotating, grabbing it with a robotic arm. Um, it's quite a precise thing that you would need to do. Whereas if you've got a harpoon, you can align it aim, wait till it's facing the right way and shoot it using compressed air is what they're going to be using <laughs> harpoon through it and then just drag it into the atmosphere and let it burn itself up Now the thing, the thing I think is weird about this story is yeah. um, it says here tw- there are 20,000 items 10 centimetres or larger mm. now I mean a bullet is smaller than that mm-hmm. And uh, these things can sometimes be travelling at something like 20,000 miles an hour. Very, very fast. Very, yeah. very fast. If anybody's seen um, the film uh, Gravity, Gravity yeah. it starts off, doesn't it, with uh, um, the space station being clobbered. I haven't seen it. I think it does with uh, space debris. Do you guys watch this film? Uh, Sorry, Aaron and Rosie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If Andrew was here, he'd be straight <laughs> oh, he'd on be it. He'd be you know, really upset with us. This is his thing. Sorry, um, Andrew. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it, it's uh, a, a bit of a, mm. uh, a mystery to me because it seems that, though, of course, big bits of space junk, we need to get rid of them, but yeah. a far bigger problem is these tiny little things, just, bullet-sized things. People used to think that space is so huge, how could junk ever be a problem there because there is so much space that one tiny piece of, of uh, space junk or a lost spanner or whatever isn't going to cause a problem, but it's turning out that that is is going to cause a problem. Uh, the latest harpoon that they're developing is um, intended for use on the 8-tonne Envisat Earth observation platform that is um, currently just a piece of uh, space junk flying around that needs to be uh, taken under control and burnt up in the atmosphere, it turns out. Um, but then hopefully they'll be working uh, down to some of the smaller stuff that is also harder to track. I think they'll probably use some slightly different techniques because the big harpoon is about a metre long and I think it's probably going to be quite hard to harpoon something that's just 10 centimetres across. Yes, absolutely. It's quite Something like a a big net or something. Mm. Well, that's the thing. There's Next month there's going to be a remove debris mission. Remove debris and capitalise, that's the name of the mission. And they're going to take their own piece of junk, they're going to release and then try and recapture, as well as trialling a net to see if that works as well, which is really cool. All right. Well, just to let you know, uh, we've got uh, John Ford in the studio. He's just, uh, uh, just appeared as if by magic yeah. because uh, he's going to be uh, on next. So stay tuned uh, to the new, uh, after the news because John Ford will be getting uh, Bristol home after. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. Uh, Hello. Well, how are you? Many. I'm all right, thank you. And you were you bob on about um, 
uh, the film you were talking about, yeah. Yeah, that uh, is what was, happened, was on wasn't it? The other night, yeah. yeah. No, and, and it yeah. turns out to be this, this huge problem. What, yes, what do you think we left out of the show? This, oh, this I mean, where do I begin? Loads of stuff. So things, as uh, always. We've only got time to just do one. I'll do yeah. the rest after four o'clock. Uh, 60 years ago this very day, 1958, Britain's first planetarium, the London Planetarium, opened uh, in the west wing of Madame Tussauds. Mm. One of the world's largest. Oh. Uh, at the time, the site uh, used was that of the former cinema and restaurant. Um, and it had been uh, destroyed by the German bomb in 1940 um, prior to that. But, yeah, it reopened as a planetarium, first one. Andrew would be proud of that fact. Yeah, yeah he absolutely he would be. Absolutely would. Planetariums yeah. are just the most amazing things. They are, indeed. Just yeah. sit there with your head back, looking out. And we're blessed with one uh, in Millennium Square, aren't we? Absolutely, absolutely. The famous Silver Dome. Well, look, uh, don't forget to stay, stay tuned so you can hear John getting Bristol uh, home after the news. Um, it's been our pleasure to be with you this afternoon talking about science um, we you've been listening to me Malcolm Love and Hannah Bestwick we were joined by Rosie McCollum and Aaron Moran don't forget to, to join us again uh, next week for another edition of Love and Science have yourselves a fantastic evening goodbye